Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Becca Cudmore, writing for Audubon, says many scientists say it's impossible to study thought and emotion in non-humans. Animals, they say, don't communicate their inner turmoil through spoken word, which is why any attempt to understand their psyche is typically sneered at as anthropomorphism. In other words, transferring your own experiences and emotions onto the animals you study is deemed unscientific. MacArthur Fellow and marine biologist Carl Safina says that scientists who watch wild animals realize the absurdity of not addressing an animal's inner life. And in his new book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, he takes us inside the lives and minds of animals, witnessing their profound capacity for perception, thought, and emotion. He takes us to the wilds of Africa to visit some of the last great elephant gatherings following the wolves of Yellowstone National Park and plunges into the peaceful society of killer whales living in the waters of the Pacific Northwest. He calls on us to reevaluate our relationship to other species around us. Carl Safina's work has been recognized with MacArthur, Pew, Guggenheim Fellowships. His writing has won the Orion, Lennon, and National Academy's Literary Awards. Uh, he uh, has received a Ph.D. from uh, Rutgers, and he's the inaugural holder of the Endowed Chair for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University. He's founding president of the not-for-profit organization, the Safina Center. And you may have seen him uh, as host of the 10-part PBS series, Saving the Ocean, with Carl Safina. Carl Safina, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Appreciate you uh, you being with us. So I want to start with this idea of anthropomorphism, and it is, uh, at least in the scientific community, a lot large part of the scientific community uh, has a stigma, right? We shouldn't transfer our feelings and emotions onto animals. You're pushing back, I believe, against that. Well, I'm saying you shouldn't assume that other animals feel the way that you do, but you shouldn't insist that they can't feel the way that you do, because many things about how they live their lives uh, follow the same imperatives that we have for food and mates and safety and protection, and the emotions and motivations that drive those things are very, very old, and we inherit them in our brains along with the same brain chemicals and many of the same brain structures, the same nervous system. We have have eyes to see and ears to hear and noses to smell, and so do they. So uh, we we share many identical systems, and um, their perceptions through those systems uh, are in many ways very similar, if not identical, to ours. How did this uh, latest book uh, come about? What, What was the genesis? Well, it was two things, really. One is that I have always been interested just in what do animals do and why do they do it, because I, I love animals, and I think that they're fantastically beautiful, and they really enrich the world, and uh, I, I just always loved watching animals, so it was always of great interest to me to see what they do and ask why they're doing it. The other thing is that I've worked for many, many years in conservation, and in conservation, we talk about numbers. We say that this species has lost 80% of its range. It's down by 90% in numbers. We uh, only have 4,000 individuals left, and therefore it will go on the endangered species list. But those are just numbers. And they tell us a little bit about what is at stake, but they don't tell us at all about who is at stake and give us any sense of the experience of life of these other creatures and, and therefore the validity of their lives and their presence here with us. So it was partly just sheer curiosity uh, and going back to my original interest that I had when I was a young person, and partly because of the imperatives to just simply leave these other creatures some room as we are mostly crowding them out. And uh, it's about reading. Uh, I sense, I don't have to sense very, very much. You have some frustration about the environmental movement well uh, yeah I mean I do Uh, nothing in the book is an attempt to um, cast aspersions at the efforts of the environmental movement but I I don't think that I don't think that the idea that we share the planet with with other life forms is uh, you know that whose whose existence is really important and crucial to them and to us is something that uh, has really won the day. So I think that um, the, the the environmental movement and the conservation movement um, have have shown limitations in their ability to really 
uh, catch the hearts and minds of people and, um, uh, and you know, really establish a, a, a wider set of values, a more inclusive set of values. And uh, so uh, how, how best to get the message out then? How better to get the message out, do you think? Well, I think, I mean, I've been in the environmental movement and, and worked in conservation for decades. So to the extent that it hasn't worked, I, I share some of those failures myself. And uh, I think that what we need to do instead of just say uh, that we need to preserve these things is to show who it is that we're actually trying to preserve and what what life means for other animals, other, other animals in the cases of, of each of the ones that I mainly focused on in the book there, the, the elephants, the wolves, and the killer whales. And there are many others. I mean, I just had to pick three to focus on. But their their lives are important to them. Their families are important to them. When they when one of them gets killed, it it changes the the trajectory of life for the survivors in those families. Um, they know who they are. They know who their friends are. They know who their enemies are. They understand who their children are, and their their lives strike me as very similar to tribal people, who, uh, you know for most of human history, didn't know that the world was round or that we were part of a solar system or or have electronic technology, and most people never had any of that. Most people never had anything more complicated than uh, a bow and an arrow, and uh, a, a chimpanzee cracking nuts with rocks is not that different than a, a person pounding nuts open with, with rocks and, and logs. It's uh, So these, you know, we, we tend to think of ourselves as people of the space age and of the electronic and digital age. But for the vast majority of human history, we, we weren't that, and yet we had fully human minds, and we experienced life in a very vivid way, and we understood who was around us and the limits of our territory. And if you watch elephants or you watch wolves or you watch families of killer whales where, uh, where individuals are together for many years, in, in the case of the killer whales and the elephants, individuals stay together for for upwards of 50 years sometimes, and uh, they matter to one another. They matter deeply to one another, and they show it. I wonder if we could talk about the elephants. It's fascinating, uh, fascinating animals. Um, and uh, I wonder if you could start with the, this idea of, uh, I hadn't known this, elephants, I guess, actually experience post-traumatic stress disorder? And you say not something like it, but actual PTSD. It's, it seems to be actual PTSD. They're certainly traumatized. I, th- I think that um, no one would say that an elephant that has watched the rest of its family get killed and has uh, suddenly lost its mother um, is is not traumatized because they show all of the uh, all of the kinds of symptoms of it. They um, they are frightened. They are they're nervous and not trusting. They can sometimes become unpredictable uh, or dangerous. Um, elephants, in particular, can watch for an opportunity to get revenge if they think that uh, that somebody is in a position to cause them harm. And um, if people haven't harmed them, they they tend not to bother people or or attack people. It's uh, it's mostly elephants who have had some sort of traumatic experience of uh, experience, you know, of violence of their uh, own families and uh, their their own friends that are traumatized in this way. So, um, they're because their brains are so similar to ours in in the emotional centers and the and the structures and the chemistry of those centers. It's uh, it's likely that they experience post-traumatic stress disorder that is very similar, if not the same thing. Um, but if one doesn't want to quibble about that, it, it's, it's very obvious that they are emotionally traumatized. Mm. We do know, know also that families whose uh, matriarchs are killed, these are the elder females who lead the family, uh, those, the survivor's uh, rate of longer-term survival drops, there's more mortality, and the reproduction rate drops. 
So the the families of um, elephants that have been killed, the survivors, in a sense, experience more turmoil and more suffering than did the ones that were actually just killed at the scene, because their their lives um, are, are you know frayed and they don't know what to do. They don't have the knowledge. Uh, that they were using, that they were relying on to survive, uh, that knowledge was stored in the minds of the elders who understood what to do when when there's a terrible drought. Where is the last food and water? How you know how to cope with different situations? So they lose all of that, and it shows in their survival rates. Hmm. I wonder if we talk a bit about uh, grief in in elephants in a related uh, topic, and and. I guess some of the troublesome aspects, at least when you're in the scientific world, how do you quantify this? You, of course, it's hard to quantify it in the human world, but you know, as you say, sadness is not a kilogram lighter than grief. Mourning isn't two meters shorter than happiness. And since animals don't talk, they certainly communicate. They don't talk. How do you how do you get into that? Right. Right. Well, you know, science does thrive best on the things that are most easily measured, and the most easily measured things are things that are not alive, like trajectory rates of objects that are moving and uh, uh, gravity and things like that. So physics and chemistry are the the classical parts of science that are most easily quantified, and you really can measure exactly what it is you're talking about. When you get to living things, it gets much harder, and when you focus on behavior, it gets harder still. And when you focus on the inner experiences of animals, you, since you can't share those inner experiences, you have to look at the outer, um, the outer indications of what's going on inside. And w- with something like grief or uh, something like empathy or even consciousness, you, you need really clear definitions. You need to make definitions of what it is you're talking about. So with grief, the author Barbara J. King gives us a nice definition of grief, and she says that when uh, an individual dies and its companions change their routines, change the way that they feed, change where they go, um, alter what they've been doing, and are and appear to be looking for the one that has died, then that is grief. And we do very much the same thing ourselves. We, uh, if somebody in our family dies, we probably don't go to work for a few days, we go to a different place, a funeral parlor, we, we attend to them, we may visit them at the cemetery um, and, uh, you know, have a few silent words with them. Um, and other animals, when they lose uh, mates and family members, can often be seen if you look at them, and it's very hard to do with wild animals, but if you see them, they often do alter their routines, they will be... Um, calling and searching for the one that is missing. And uh, in the case of elephants, they hang around uh, and come back and visit the bones. When they visit the bones, they often fondle the parts that they knew best in life, that they recognized as an individual. In other words, the tusks, the teeth, uh, because when elephants greet, they usually put their trunks uh, to one another's faces and in each other's mouths, sort sort of like a a kiss in that way, and uh, they they revisit these most you know the most familiar parts of the of the skeleton of these elephants. They will come back in the future. There are stories also of uh, wolves that have lost a mate and just uh, leave the pack, leave their family, and go uh, walking uh, for a period of a couple of weeks, where they just seem to be. Um, aimlessly wandering around, and then they, then they come back as if uh, they've gotten over it and need to get on with life. Even, even at the level of, we, we had a couple of ducks, and I was really surprised. Um, these two ducks were inseparable, and when one of them suddenly got ill and died, the other one spent several weeks calling and calling and calling and looking all around. It obviously had its mate on, on her mind, and she obviously was looking for that mate and uh, and obviously missed that that mate and missed the company and companionship which is what we miss and what we grieve about and uh, eventually she had to get over it um 
and she kind of did, or at least you know that's for all for all outward purposes she seemed to get back to things. But it took a couple of weeks, and when we grieve, we grieve for love and companionship that is lost to us. Not not only death. Sometimes people who we love decide to walk out of our lives, and we we do grieve for them even though we know that they're alive. We, we just miss them a lot. That's what really grief is. Mm. No, you know, some I, I've, I've heard the, I guess, the line of thinking that uh, you, you, can't, you can't use the word emotion with this. You have to use the word instinct with, with animals. I don't know if you've heard, heard that. But uh, which, yeah, which I've, heard, I've heard that my entire life, but yeah. that's extremely inexact because instinct is just things that you do um, that you don't have to learn to do. They just come naturally. So, for instance, humans have a language instinct. We acquire language as babies, and we do that very naturally. Uh, some animals have a homing instinct. Many animals have instincts to do things, and then on top of those instincts, they learn skills, and they become better and better at it. A cat it has an instinct for hunting. It chases things, but it gets better and better at hunting as it learns what to do. Same thing for any hunting animal or, or a falcon or anything like that. That's totally different than emotion. So to say it's instinct, not emotion, is apples and oranges. It's not even comparing the same thing. Emotion is things like um, fear, rage, jealousy, uh, defensiveness, love, um, and those kinds of things. And those emotions are widely shared, and the animals that have structured social groups where the individuals mean something to each other, they develop very deep social bonds and very deep desires to be near each other, which in humans we call that love, and in animals that's what it is. But um, fear is very basic and very old, and that is an emotion. Even empathy, which is the ability to match your mood with your companions so that you're, you're, with, you're with some people and suddenly uh, somebody is suddenly frightened and it, it frightens you. Uh, or somebody is, um, uh, you know, is in a really good mood, is joyful, is, is laughing, and it puts you in a good mood. So, that, so empathy is the ability to match emotions. Empathy is a very, very old thing. Any animals that live in groups have the ability to instantly feel fear if their companions uh, suddenly startle or are alarmed. And that has obvious value because if, if somebody sees a dangerous predator rapidly approaching and flees, and you're just standing there saying, gee, I wonder what got into them, you won't last very long. So the uh, probably the most basic kind of, emo of emotion that is most widely shared among the most kinds of animals is, is contagious fear, which is, uh, which is a type of empathy. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll have more with uh, MacArthur Fellow, biologist uh, Carl Safina. Uh, you uh, maybe have seen him on uh, the PBS uh, special. Uh, Saving Our Oceans with uh, Carl Sfina's new book, very interesting book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. You can join the program here at 1-800-826-1495. If you have a comment or question, toll-free 1-800-826-1495. Or our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter. Use the hashtag AccessUtah to participate. More following the break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. To address the frightening public health concerns of increasingly frequent drug-resistant pathogens, USU Uinta Basin biology professor Leanna Etchberger and her students are on the hunt for new antibiotics. The students collect soil samples and antibiotic-producing microbes in the vernal area and upload their findings to a central database of samples from around the world. Their efforts contribute to a global effort to combat disease. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. 
details at usu.edu slash science. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival, October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. An in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Carl Safina. His book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, is just out. Uh, he says he examines how animals truly think and feel, which he says calls into question what really does and what should make us human. He calls on us to reevaluate our relationship to other species around us. Carl Safina has been uh, recognized as a MacArthur Fellow. He's received Pew and Guggenheim Fellowships as well. And uh, he's hosted the 10-part PBS series Saving the Ocean with Carl Safina. His writing appears in the New York Times, Audubon, Orion, and other periodicals. And his previous books include Song for the Ocean Blue, Eye of the Albatross, Voyage of the Turtle, and View from Lazy Point. You can join this conversation if you would like. We hope that you will. If you have a question or comment, at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter. Use the hashtag AccessUtah to participate uh, here. Uh, so, Carl Safina, I want to uh, to go back to elephants. Uh, I want to go on to uh, to wolves a little later in the program and uh, have you talk about the, this fascinating uh, individual uh, number twenty one, uh, going by the by the number on his uh, radio sure, collar. Sure. Um, but uh, this is is just it's it's heartbreaking. You'd really do <laughs> feel a connection to the to the elephants. Uh, so, there's a matriarch named Eleanor. She's ailing. Another matriarch, Grace approaches her with her facial glands streaming from motion. So this is something people may not know. Uh, elephants have facial glands. Tell us about that. Yeah. On the, on the sides of their heads, elephants have glands that, um, that stream when they are feeling emotional. And uh, it's whenever they're feeling very emotional, whether they're happy or upset, and in a way, what I, what I related to is human armpits. You know, we get sweaty armpits when we're uh, just excited in different kinds of ways or, or upset or stressed in different, different kinds of ways. Um, theirs happen to be on the sides of their heads, but, and you can see uh, that they're streaming because the, the sides of their faces get wet. You can see those glands streaming. Um, and uh, in the case that you're talking about, there's an, an elephant that is ailing and collapses, and her uh, her very good friend comes and tries to raise her, succeeds in raising her, but she, she is dying and she collapses again. And uh, this friend stays with her for uh, a long time, for a couple of days. Other, other friends and family members come, and they're all milling around. And then over the course of, of numerous days, the other elephants that she best knew, the ones in her family and the, the family that was, were their closest friends, Come and visit the corpse, and um, uh, obviously you you can't you can't know that and then come away thinking that they don't have minds and they don't have emotions and their lives don't mean anything to them. Hmm. So uh, it's um, it, it's a very very moving story, I think. Yeah, yeah. You, you see in the behavior, you see uh, you see evidence of thought uh, of emotion. Obviously, uh, the glands, especially. I don't know. I. My mind goes to tears. Is that uh-huh. is that a uh-huh. too big a leap? Is that a dangerous leap? I don't know. Uh, I I don't I don't know if it's too big a leap. I mean, we, uh, tears are when our when the glands in the corners of our eyes start streaming, and uh, crying in humans does not seem to me to have a very close analogy uh, with other adult animals. It uh, but many other uh, baby animals cry, and uh, we seem to carry that infantile crying, which of course we all do as babies, we seem to carry that all the way into adulthood. But one of the things about humans is we we carry a lot of juvenile traits all the way into adulthood. And um, some of that is good, our our sense of um, playfulness and 
curiosity and things like that are are basically juvenile traits that we maintain for a long period of time. But I don't know if um, if crying in humans is analogous to those glands streaming. Uh, it's comparable, you know, uh, because because as I said, tears are 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 glands that are streaming liquid. They're streaming tears. Mm-hmm. So uh, and that and that's emotion and the elephants in a sense are doing the same thing. And I assume uh, emotions exhibit other emotions. We've talked about grief, uh, but 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 staying with grief. Uh, so this is something we share, right? Humans experience grief. Elephants experience grief. Other animals experience grief. What, right, what you... and other animals. Uh, you know, elephant grief is not all the same thing. Just like human grief is not all the same thing. Sometimes people people we know die. Sometimes people even in our own families die, and uh, we're sad for a while, and we get over it. Sometimes people in our families or, or, or people we've loved die, and we never get over it. So with human grief, it's not all the same thing. And same with elephant grief. There was uh, one example of a uh, family of elephants that um, came into a research camp. And in this research camp, the researchers had collected the skulls of elephants that had died, and they collect the skulls because by examining the teeth you can tell things about their age at death. So uh, this family of elephants came into the camp and they went right to the skull of the one that had been their matriarch, as, as though they could tell right away which skull that was. And then the family moved on, except for one who was lingering, and the one who was lingering happened to be her son. So, you know, that to me is a tip of an iceberg of the depth of emotion and cognition and experience that these animals are having that we don't tend to even think about. And, and um, for some people, they've, you know, they've, they've decided decades ago that uh, they simply can't have emotion. So it's not even a question that they ask. But when you watch them, and this is true, really, for any, any people who, who watch wild animals professionally and study uh, these groups of animals. They, to them, there's never a question about whether they are conscious or whether they have emotions and feelings. It's, it's only people who really don't understand free-living animals very well, or sometimes people who test animals in laboratory apparatus uh, uh, apparatuses that are not um, appropriate for the way that they live their normal lives and who they really are, who come up with these kinds of questions about, well, we can't really tell whether they experience anything. I mean, I could apply the exact same questions to you. You could apply them to mm-hmm. me. How do you know whether I experience anything? Maybe I'm just a machine talking. But these are the kinds of things that people sometimes say about animals. And if you see how they navigate their incredibly complicated worlds and uh, stay alive the way that they do. It's just, it's just very obvious to people who know wild animals that they, they do have thoughts and emotions. Their thoughts and emotions are not exactly ours, but they are thoughts and emotions nonetheless. So what, what lessons do we draw from this? What, what should we draw from this? You know, for example, um, you know, that maybe there needs to be a disconnect uh, to, to poach, you know, or to, to, to kill animals, uh, you know. And, and so if we close that gap, then we well, obviously we shouldn't be poaching. We shouldn't be doing some of these things. But should we capture animals? Should we, should we kill them for food? What to, well, how broad you know, do we take this? The part of the answer to how we should view these things is... Um, is seen in how we have often talked about other groups of people. And when you want to abuse other people, the first thing you do is dehumanize them. And you say things like was, uh, was said by an American general in Vietnam, that life is cheap in the Orient, and life doesn't really matter to people living in the Orient. Well, ridiculous, horrible things like that are how you can abuse people. Um, uh, obviously, during the, the whole era of slavery, uh, of African slavery, people said horrendous things about the, the emotional and intellectual capacities 
of people living in Africa, that they, they don't really feel love, that they have no sense of aesthetics, uh, incredibly disgusting things. But why do, we, why do we say that? Because it makes it easier to abuse them if you think that they can't suffer. We unfortunately say all the same things about other animals, and um, it's very obvious that they, in fact, can suffer. So I think one of the reasons that we like the story that they, they can't think or feel is that it gives us two things that we most like to hear, which is that we are categorically special, that we, there's nothing else on earth like us and as special as us in every regard. We like that story. And the other story we like is that we don't really have to consider their emotions and whether they are happy or sad or suffering because they can't. And if we tell ourselves those two stories, then uh, we feel really special and we feel like it's absolutely okay to do anything we want to other animals. And um, I think, unfortunately, both of those stories are completely wrong. Hmm. So let's, uh, let's uh, you know, imagine that uh, the, the message putting forward in, in the book, you know, about animal emotions and thoughts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, gets disseminated as widely, you know, as, as your wildest dreams could imagine. What, what, yeah. then, what then should follow? What, what, would, what would follow? What, uh, how would we act differently? Well, I think, first of all, we would, uh, we would understand that all these other forms of life uh, absolutely belong in the world and that as a matter of course always we need to leave them some room uh and and a follow-on to that is that i think we would appreciate and enjoy them vastly more than most people do like uh you know people who are real naturalists and and real ecologists they get a a very very deep sense of connection and joy from their experiences in the natural world that are uh almost um, religious without the theology, but that sense of connection and that sense of meaning, um, being being part of something bigger, all, all of those things are things that we can appreciate in nature as long as we do have some nature and, and leave it. And I think, I actually think that human dignity depends on there being uh, an, enough of the natural world left and us taking care of it and being stewards rather than destroyers. Um, the other thing is that we would have to have, a, a, I think, a very different approach to domestic animals. I think for, for many people it would mean that um, they would probably choose not to eat meat. Um, and across the board, I think that what it would mean is that uh, you'd have to make sure that animals were having a happy life being who they are before we very carefully and very humanely killed them. So you would you would never have factory farming and these uh, concentration camp conditions for cows and pigs and chickens. We we have some domestic animals here. We have a few chickens. We we have a couple of dogs. And uh, our chickens roam around the yard all the time. They're very, very, uh, you know, they're very comfortable. They they peck around and scratch the leaves, and they they get to be they get to be who they are. And um, to me, that's a source of pride as as well as a great source of enjoyment. We we really like watching them. They're very soothing to watch. And uh, I could imagine that you could have a very humane approach to keeping domestic animals and still kill and eat them. Um, it's not something I like to do anymore. I pretty much don't um, buy uh, meat from animals that have been farmed and killed. I, I do still go fishing, and I do still, um, I do still eat fish, so I, I'm not a vegetarian. But I, I, I'm very mindful of the kind of experience that an animal gets to have before, uh, before I eat it. And for the most part, I, I, I would rather not be part of that, and, uh, and for the most part, I'm not. But that's more of an individual thing, and I, I think to circle back and answer your question directly, if everybody really fully embraced the kinds of things that are in my book that I have come to uh, believe are really true about the experiences of animals, then uh, we would give 
uh, domestic animals much, much better lives than we do, and we would give the wild animals much better consideration and a lot more room. Let's uh, go to an email. This is uh, emailer says, a wonderful conversation. The guest is saying things I've always believed. There is much discussion today about emotions in wild animals, most of whom we must observe from afar. We live every day with dogs and cats. What can the guests say about their emotions? I'm especially interested in the emotions of grief and loneliness cats may feel when their companions pass away. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think that um, I've been surprised by how many kinds of animals people report grief in. Uh, that when when an animal has a companion and the companion dies, that they uh, act depressed and they don't they simply don't behave the same for a period of time afterward. The most surprising thing along those lines was somebody told me that they had two bearded dragon lizards, and I I would not have thought that lizards have social bonds, but uh, this person was claiming that when one of them died. The other one became very inactive for a couple of months and just didn't seem the same. I also talked to a guy who worked at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, and he's one of the world's great experts on reptiles. So he's pretty tuned into reptiles. And he had two African spur-thighed tortoises that lived in the museum with, in his office, his office was uh, sort of half an office and half a zoo, and uh, just a fantastic 18th century kind of a place to visit. But he was telling me that these tortoises, um, that, that they uh, loved to go and visit his secretary, and when the, when the secretary retired and then she came back six months later, they acted all happy to see her, and uh, they, they were really active, and they were kind of rocking their bodies back and forth. So I think that there is a depth of emotional experience that we haven't even allowed ourselves to entertain with many animals. And then if you, if you go from something like reptiles up to mammals, their, their, their brains and their, uh, their relationships with other individuals are, are much, much more similar to ours. And, yeah, I think that um, it's, it seems very clear to me that animals get depressed when their companions go away. Many people know that if they, if they have dogs and they travel a lot, when, when the dog sees the duffel bags coming out of the closet, they, they know that the owner is going to be gone for a time and they get depressed. I've had two dogs that were like that. Um, so, yeah, they, they know what's going on and they know who they are and who their friends are. By the way, we'll take a break here pretty soon. Uh, you, you, uh, in your bio, you say you have the two best beach running dogs in the world. Um, the, so I guess you you go running on the beach. Joy for all for all of us. <laughs> uh, yeah, take them on a uh, take them for a run on the beach at dawn is just one of the great joys of my life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I uh, my sister had a dog, a sheep dog, whose favorite thing in the world was to ride in the back of my car. Um, mm-hmm. with, with both windows open, and she'd run back and forth and back and forth and stick her head out the window. And, uh, you know, hard not to ascribe some joy to, to that, you know, an emotional. Well, obviously, they're, in, they're obviously yeah. enjoying themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, we, have, we have one dog. She'll come over to you and roll over on her back, and she wants you to rub her belly. She obviously knows that it feels good, and she obviously is thinking, I, I want my belly rubbed. And she comes over and asks for it by rolling on her back. She, she knows what she's asking for, and... And she knows that you know what she's asking for and that you'll oblige and it'll feel good. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about some more emotions, uh, jealousy and parrots. We'll talk about this fascinating character, uh, number 21, uh, a wolf in the Yellowstone National Park and more. The book is Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. The author is Carl Safina. We have him for another 10 minutes. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can do so by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Our toll-free number, phone number is 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us on Twitter as well. Use the hashtag AccessUtah. More following the break. A Mexican scientist unravels the mystery of why some prairies turn to desert and what was missing. 
all the way to the horizon. They were prey dogs and prey dogs and prey dogs. And then the next day, we saw badgers. Badgers are very rare in Mexico. It hit me immediately, the idea that prey dogs should have some role. Restoring the prairie and the prairie dog. I'm Steve Kerwood. That's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Wednesday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Did you know that looking at scenes from nature can make you feel less impulsive? Researchers at USU found that people who viewed natural scenes made better decisions. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater in Logan, presenting the International Opera Finals Competition July 29th, featuring opera highlights performed by soloists and orchestra. Details at utahfestival.org. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking with uh, biologist and MacArthur Fellow Carl Safina. His new book, Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel, is uh, just out. You can join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxis at gmail.com, and you can join us on Twitter. Uh, let's turn to the wolves. You uh, you went out with uh, Rick McIntyre, I believe, uh, Yellowstone National Park area. And, of course, here in Utah, we're very familiar with the the controversy, which I think still rages over what should be done with the wolves, certainly was when the wolves were reintroduced. I'd like you to tell me about this fascinating character, number 21, so-called because that's the number on his radio collar. Yeah. So, yes, this is Rick McIntyre's story, and I want to make clear that um, he is an incredible person and was very generous in sharing um, many of the things that he has seen with these wolves over the years. Rick has watched wild wolves for more hours than any person in the history of planet Earth. He has been out every single day with these wolves in Yellowstone for the last 15 years. He's a ranger and researcher, um, a truly amazing, amazing um, observer. And uh, 21, this wolf whose, whose collar was number 21, was one of the first wolves born in Yellowstone after the reintroduction, born to one of the uh, parents that had been trapped in Canada and brought to Yellowstone for the reintroduction. And um, his father was shot, and... Um, uh, 21 was uh, brought into captivity briefly with his mother um, while they were very, very young, and then they were re-released. And um, he, he found a, a great break in life by wandering into another pack right after that pack's alpha male had died. And so he inherited uh, alpha status in one of the packs in Yellowstone. He was uh, an exceptionally robust-bodied wolf. He was, he was just a big guy. And the thing about him that was so amazing is that he was in a lot of fights with other wolves from other packs, but never lost a fight in his whole life and never killed a wolf that he had beaten. And both of those things are absolutely exceptional. And then he died of old age on his own terms. So he was he was extraordinary. And uh, as Rick McIntyre reports, he loved to play with the with the pups, right? And, and this is in, very interesting yes, play. Uh, yes, yes. And uh, Rick said that one of his one of his favorite things to do was not only to play with the pups, but to pretend to lose to uh, invite and encourage the pups to pounce all over him and attack him. And then he'd roll over on his back with his paws up in the air, just as Rick said, getting a huge kick out of, uh, out of losing to, the, to his pups. So that, uh, that indicates personality, obviously, right? Uh, thought process, emotion. Well, well first of all, it, 
it was very, very, I mean, I really resonated with it because my own father did things like that with me. When my father taught me to play chess, for instance, I didn't realize it, but he was intentionally losing to me <laughs> as a way to encourage me. And so, um, you know, without trying to get too choked up here, that was something, that was a story that I really resonated with. But uh, the idea of individual personalities, which you mentioned, is one that uh, individual personalities, differences in behaviors and, and impulses and things like um, uh, some are bold, some are shy, some are very inquisitive, some are not so curious. Every, every animal that personality has ever been looked for has shown these kinds of differences. Uh, everything from, uh, you know, elephants and wolves that we've been talking about uh, down to things like octopuses, which uh, are not even vertebrates, and even even farther down into things like insects, like bees and things like that. So um, personality is a, is a very, very interesting area, and it's way more widespread in the animal kingdom than any of us ever suspected. But among vertebrates, among things like uh, mammals and birds, and um, as I was mentioning, that friend of mine at the museum with his tortoises, uh, every, every time people get to know these animals, what they see is individuals are individuals. They have different personalities, and some are more playful, some are bolder, some are shyer. Uh, some, are, some are more skittish, things like that. Here's another email that's coming. You can email as well. Have a couple of minutes to do that. Upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, this is Ronnie who says, uh, Thank you for this discussion. It seems to me that humans equate being civilized, quote-unquote, with distancing ourselves from our fellow creatures, accounting for our unfortunate abuse of all that is not human. We won't solve any of our environmental crises until we recognize that we are as much a part of Gaia as everyone, everything else, subject to the same biological and social-emotional pressures. Only when we respect the rest of nature as equal will we be able to live in harmony. That's a comment from, from Ronnie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I resonate a lot with almost all of that, and um, I think that uh, it does... You know, the only thing I would in a sense say that I might I might have phrased a little bit differently is um, uh, the rest of nature as equal um, there uh, nature is much much bigger than us nature nature is why we can be here and uh, doesn't really matter so much whether it's equal or not I wouldn't I wouldn't want anybody to start arguing whether it's equal or not the point is that um, w- without nature there really isn't anything and we uh, we need to recognize that these other creatures, like us or not, it, it doesn't matter how like us they are, it, it matters that they are leading lives out there that are as valid to them as ours are to us. And we should recognize and respect that, because otherwise we're just going to be running the world down and making it a simpler, poorer place. Are there distinctions we can make or should make or can make or, or that you make among animals in terms of thought and emotion? For example, uh, you know, we talk about your king snake Frankie, reading about in your biography, uh, you know, the, yes. uh, or uh, spiders or, you know, I don't know. Are there distinctions? Well, everything is distinct. You know, humans are very special in our way and, and elephants are very special in their way and albatrosses are very special in their way. I think one distinction I don't make is the idea that humans are in a totally separate category from, quote, animals, unquote. Humans are animals. We're, we're a kind of animal. We're a particular kind of animal. We do a lot of very remarkable things that are really good. We also do a lot of very remarkable things that are really horrendous. We are, we are by far the most creative and compassionate of all the animals, and at the same time, we are by far the most destructive and violent of all the animals. So uh, we're, we are quite a package, but all of life is on a continuum. There are no sharp breaks in the categories. Even, uh, you know, you could say, well, aren't plants very different from animals? Well, in some ways they are very different, but in some ways they are very similar. 
the, the, the cells are in many ways very similar, the cellular components, the, the, you know, the basic chemistry of life. Plants even make some chemicals that are in human brains, that in, in, in higher animals uh, create mood and emotion in the mind. And some plants have some of those chemicals. So no sharp breaks, everything on one big continuum. We just have a couple of minutes left. I wonder um, if there's anything you'd like to say here, here at the end, just to summing up. Uh, well, um, I think I, <laughs> I think I kind of just did. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. That's but, <laughs> that's um, true. My my big message really is all life is one family, and the the more we understand that, the better it is for us and everything else. And uh, I I think that that is a true fact. So the uh, Safina Center, which, by the way, is safinacenter.org, um, is there anything you'd like to plug there? What's what's going on? Oh, well, our, our main role, we're, we're at Stony Brook University on Long Island, New York, and our, our main mission is to try to help people understand uh, and feel a better and closer connection with the rest of the living world through the products that we create. And we, we focus on writing books and doing films and uh, uh Photography, uh, uh, things you know, think basically things that people can have and share and use that help us understand where we fit in the natural world. The book is Beyond Words: What Animals Think and Feel. The author is Carl Safina, and uh, we appreciate it so much. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it enormously. As an as an ocean oriented guy, I don't get into the middle of the country that frequently. So, <laughs> thanks a lot for helping bring me there. Well, we got a we got a big lake out here, Great Salt Lake. So, I thought you'd be <laughs> welcome to come out and visit. Um, thank you. Uh, coming up tomorrow, uh, heading up to uh, the state holiday, a Pioneer Day. We're going to be talking with uh, historian Richard Francovilla. He has an interesting new book out called "The Map Makers of New Zion: A Cartographic History of Mormonism." This is from their earliest days on the American frontier through their growth into a worldwide church. These spatially expansive Mormons made maps to help them create idealized communities, migrate to and colonize large parts of the American West, and visualize the stories in their sacred texts. Mapmakers of New Zion, Richard Francovilla, coming up tomorrow. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Shift Festival. October 7th through 10th in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. An in-depth exploration of the opportunities and challenges at the intersection of conservation and outdoor recreation. Featuring food, film, speakers, workshops, and outdoor adventure. Details at shiftjh.org.